folks. Welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast, where we talk about the journey to financial independence and investing, especially in yourself. I'm coming to you from Playa del Carmen, Mexico today. It's much hotter here than it was in Oaxaca, where we spent the last month or so. I was reading an interesting story on the flight over, and I think you might find it interesting. And if you don't, well, hopefully, at least you'll find interesting what prompted me to tell you the story. (laughs) So we all know Levi Strauss, right? He's the man who invented denim. Well, Levi's jeans has been around forever, and he died in 1902. So he's been dead 117 years. And when he died, he was childless. He didn't have any kids. But he had a $6 million estate, which in today's dollars is $175 million. (laughs) Well, that money passed to his nephews and other relatives. And Levi Strauss was a public company until the 1970s, then IPO'd again in March of this year. So what's really interesting is 120 years later, that money is still in the family. It's been traced through the Haas family, which owns 61% of the company. So Mimi Haas is the biggest shareholder. She has $1.3 billion. (laughs) Her connection to Levi Strauss, are you ready for this? She is the widow of Levi Strauss's grandnephew, by marriage. (laughs) Yeah. So this recent IPO brought the descendants of Levi Strauss $5.6 billion. It's been true for centuries that most of most of the time wealth is gone by the third generation. But here we are 117 years later and the Levi Strauss empire lives on. But what what prompted me to tell you that story is So we were on a flight last night and a girl boarded the plane that looked like she was straight out of a 1980s MTV video. (laughs) She had Levi's and they were high up above her waist and she had the bottom tight rolled, you know, where you take the bottom and you flip it up a couple of times. They call that a tight roll. And then she had her ponytail going to the side. And I was like, Debbie Gibson is on my flight. (laughs) But here's what I found as it pertains to fashion. As long as you are old enough to remember something that went out of fashion, then I'm sorry, as long as you're not old enough to remember when it went out of fashion, then you're in the clear to sport that trend. So this girl basically had on what we called mom jeans back in the 90s. But since she was in the womb at that time, she couldn't hear people clowning mom jeans, right? So friends, I have an exciting show for you today. I'm really excited about the guest. He loves to read as much as I do. In fact, I'd be willing to bet he reads a lot more than I do. And we'll talk about why that is shortly. His name is Dom Brightman. He's a Toastmaster and a best-selling author from Baltimore, Maryland. But more than that, he's a guy who is driven to serve others. And I love that. So Dom, are you there, man? Welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. How are you? Doing great, doing great, Brad. How you feeling, man? Everything feels good. I'm grateful to have you. Uh, grateful to be on, man. Man overseas, man. <laughs> Call it a man sandwich. <laughs> the overseas is the meat. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask, are you a Levi's jeans guy? I actually am, yeah. I have a pair of athletic jeans, and they are like my favorite pair of jeans right now. It's because it's like they fit so well, and I can actually stretch in them, so... I, I love Levi's. I am a Levi guy, funny enough. Does it say your size on the outside of your jeans? Oh, thank God, no. I mean, yeah, I'm a guy, but you know what? At the same time, it's like, you know what? Even though I know what the size is, it's like I don't need everybody else to know. It's <laughs> like even though someone found out the size and walked up and was like, hey, I saw your size. There's a pair of jeans. It's like, 
one thanks two that's creepy and three i might have to move into another city <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm with you i was a jabot jeans guy for a while have you ever worn jabots now those i'm not sure of jabots <laughs> what is that like express you find those or something those are late 80s early 90s i don't know how old you are but yeah i was jabot and then abercrombie but i never did wear levi's oh I, maybe <laughs> Maybe it was, I was ashamed of my waist size. Do they even do they put the size on the on the outside still? Uh, the pants I have, no, I don't think they do. And even I, I don't see them on the jeans. I have at least the the favorite pair, the athletic pair. They don't have the size on that one, which is great. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. Well, I love talking about reading and writing and speaking. So I figured that's where we start. If that's all right with you. <laughs> my cup of tea. Cool. All right, so for those who don't know, what is a Toastmaster? Yeah, for those who don't know a Toastmaster, for those who don't know, it's for those who love to eat bread and drink wine like you're in Bible days and you get to speak to people. I was messing with you. No, but seriously, though, Toastmasters, it's actually a nonprofit organization that's been around for 90-plus years that helps people to become better communicators and better leaders. And the tagline is where leaders are made. And it's a great place to get started, especially if you're an introvert, because I like to call it the leadership laboratory. That is a low impact place for introverts to network because you're in a room with about 15 or 20 other people who have the same goal as you. And that is to get better at just speaking as well as leadership and other things. So it's like you're in the same room with the same people almost if you go there regularly after the same thing and that's just self-development professional development and it just creates that another way another family another tribe per se that's that's what toastmasters is so is it geared toward introverts oh it's not geared towards introverts but funny enough it's made about i'd say about a good the three percent of the members at in today's membership are probably women, so a lot of professional women, 35 and up usually, and sometimes there may be some ladies, I mean, yeah, women are kicking buck these days, but there's still the whole stigma of, you know, the whole lower pay thing where they pay women less, and some some women weren't born with that figure that was inspiring, and they need someone like that, so that's probably where the introversion came from, it's just the low self-esteem, and it's a great place to build self-esteem as well as just build up the confidence to actually get more out of life. I like that. I know that people's biggest fear is public speaking. Is that what people in the meetings say a lot, that they, they came to the group because they were, they were scared of public speaking? Oh, yeah, probably about a good 95% of them come in for that conquering that fear alone. I'm probably part of the 0.5% in a way because – when I joined Toastmasters about a good, almost five years ago at the time of this recording, almost five years ago, I already had a decent, I was I actually consider myself a pretty darn good speaker because I was in church and we had to recite scriptures, took part of plays, and I was giving speeches in front of hundreds of people from week to week sometimes, so I came in for the networking aspect, but most of the folks who went to Toastmasters usually go for the conquering public speaking. I've seen clips of talks that you've given, and I've listened to some of your podcast episodes. I would characterize you as having like a laid back intensity or assertiveness. Is that something that you try to bring to your public speaking? If I'm even correct in saying that, that you have like a laid back intensity about the way that you speak. <laughs> I actually like the way you put it, a laid back intensity. It's almost like a boxy ball in a way. <laughs> it kind of is. But, but yeah. 
approachable. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like um, you stand up there and you articulate well, but when you have a point that you really want to emphasize, it's like you channel something deep inside you, like there's a passion about it, but you do it at the right time. I mean, is this something that just comes natural or do you work on that? Well, how do you think about that? I have to say that was through time and Toastmasters because I was a good speaker going in, but Toastmasters made me a better speaker because kind of tailing back to what I mentioned earlier, I was giving talks at churches, doing prayers in front of hundreds of people, and usually in a black Baptist church, it's usually intense. <laughs> and learning a way to speak more, I guess in a way more professional, more corporate helped out. And the fact that it just helped me to actually channel that and channel more humor into my talks and bringing more of my personality into it because it's like the speaking, the person you speak speaking will be a completely different person. It does massively really help me to bring the natural part of me out into the stage and to be able to connect with others that way. So there's really not much of a difference in terms of the guy you see on stage as well as the guy you speak with one on one. So yeah, that's a really a nice way to describe it when when you do something long enough and then you get this constant feedback and you actually take the feedback and try to work on it from folks who've been doing it longer than you or at least more maybe more polished than you it can actually help you to better yourself so yeah I, I, that's, that's like a perfect way to describe it laid back intensity that's cool so let's talk about feedback how do they approach criticism with you yeah so there's the classic sandwich method that some of the more seasoned folks like to go with that's the classic one but the one that I prefer is where you actually take what someone has done and you actually tell them how they can make it even better so like with me folks have been telling me for years I got this radio voice one person may note hey you maybe not be so monotone throughout your whole presentation maybe add a little vocal variety maybe add a pause here or add a pause there or maybe raise your pitch or lower your pitch to actually make it more interesting. So that way, when you're giving longer talks, folks aren't falling asleep. So that's basically the main way that folks usually take it, especially from my favorite folks that evaluate. And that's another thing about Toastmasters itself. It's peer evaluation. So it's basically your peers giving you feedback and how you did. And especially one of the more experienced peers who've been doing it for a long time, not just in the organization, but maybe on the job or they may be in sales or they're an author or whatever. It's always even more crisp advice for lack of a better word, because they've been out in the field and they have heard so many different presentations and they hear you. It's like, all right, how can this person take this cake and basically put the icing on it? How can they take this cupcake and put the sprinkles on it? So that way it'll be even better. So that way when you get, in front of folks and present, they'll be entertained, enthralled, informed, and you'll be a lot more polished in your presentation. So that's the main feedback piece, just taking what you have and making it better, the, the artful critique, <laughs> as some would say. Yeah. And you talked about how Toastmasters could help your self-development. I could totally see that. I mean, just in giving feedback to someone, you mentioned the sandwich method. I mean, is there a more valuable skill set to have than being able to criticize well? I mean, I could just see that benefiting, like you said, your sales career, or if you wanted to get into leadership, or it could help you in the church, you know, whatever it is that you wanted to pursue in life. If you have that characteristic, that skill set where you can criticize well, 
man, that would be a boon to your career and your self-development, right? Heck yeah. And it's like when, and then when folks outside of the organization give you feedback, it's like, oh, okay, cool. I, you can take that advice with an open mind because when you get it so much and you're used to it and it's actual real feedback and advice, it's a great thing because that's not, that's probably one thing that's lacking in today's society. A lot of especially on the internet, those black belt keyboard warriors that are basically <laughs> shy and scared on the outside. It's like they probably never been in a moment where someone gave them real feedback. They may have been one of those folks who've had the participation trophy all their life. It's like, oh, you get the shiny object for participating. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, no, this, no, you, you can be, you can do better than this. Like, this is not that time where you can just be like, oh, everything's a-okay. It's a bed of roses. Oh, we don't want to get you hurt. Like, no, (laughs) in life, you're going to get hurt. So it's always great to just get that feedback and not just at at home, but also in life, because life is going to give it to you whether you want it or not. You just got to respond to it properly. Yeah. Man, I like everything that you're saying. So what inspired you initially? How did, what made you want to get into Toastmasters and become an author and everything that you're doing? What inspired you? Yes, what inspired me was back in 2013, I had a list of programs along with my fellow church member at the time. We had this little group called the Corporate Development Ministry. And the main idea was that ministry to help prepare the churchgoers, the parishioners, the members to actually stand a better chance of getting a, getting jobs and be able to present themselves better professionally and just give another outlet as opposed to regular clubs and activities. And one of those programs for the following year was a public speaking seminar. I signed up for it and I was like, all right, so I got about a good six months from six to seven months from the time I signed up for it to try to put it together. And I heard about Toastmasters by listening to one of Brian Tracy's audiobooks. I believe it was, I think it was Goals. It might have been Goals, one of them. He has so many. And it mentioned Toastmasters. So I've looked it up online, typed in Toastmasters on Google. The Toastmasters website showed up. I found a club. I connected with them. They met on a night, Wednesday night. And I just networked with the folks in there. And funny enough, my first night, they invited me up for something called a table topic. It's where you basically are invited to get up and speak about a topic you have no idea about. And they invited me up to speak and I'm supposed to do that for one to two minutes. I did that and just, just stuff like that. And then just back to the whole joining story after joining that, I was able to network with others, get better as a speaker and actually invited my friend at the time who worked for a local news station out here in Baltimore to actually be the main keynote presenter. And he presented the seminar went over great. And I was at a crossroads where I realized, all right, so do I stay with Toastmasters or do I just forget about Toastmasters? I decided to stay and join an additional club. So the thing about Toastmasters is you don't have to stay to one club particular. You can be a member of multiple clubs. So I joined another club that was meeting on the opposite days of the one club I met. And they weren't too far away from home. So I joined them and I heard this speaker named Daniel Alley give a speech that night about how to act like a leader. And the acronym for how to act like a leader was audacious, contagious, and tenacious. A leader's audacious. You gotta be brave and sometimes a little polarizing. Yeah. And for the C oh sorry, and the C is contagious. A leader's contagious. Folks usually want to emulate you. 
and the T is tenacious. You got to stay in the fight no matter what. So hearing that speech from him, who was, he was like two years older than me and he was like 25. I was like 23 at the time. And he sold his book after the presentation and he was talking about the stuff I was reading about and just hearing him speak and being around those folks just really launched me to where I am today of writing a book. Because if you get around the people that are doing more than you and you actually try to learn from them as opposed to being jealous of them, then you'll actually get more out of life and actually want to create some of that success for yourself. That's awesome. There's a guy that I follow who he's real popular in the personal finance or in the finance and investing community. His name is Charlie Munger. And he says the will to prepare is more important than the will to win. And I can't think of an area where that would be more apropos than in public speaking. Talk about preparation as it pertains to public speaking. How important? Oh yeah. Preparation. Preparation is every day. So public speaking, it's not just on the stage in front of, 10 or 10,000 people. It's regular one-on-one conversations like this one. So for example, like with one-on-one, those are the most powerful conversations you can have because you can change one person's life that may impact 10,000 or 1 million others' lives. Kind of like with Jim Rohn and Tony Robbins. A preparation, I usually read a lot of books. A few years ago, I read a lot of books on public speaking and ways to storytell. And for those who may want to increase their Public Speaking Prowess, a nice book that came out a good few years ago, Talk Like Ted. Mm-hmm. It was a great book that talked a lot about storytelling. And storytelling is one of the greatest assets for just communication in general. If you're trying to explain something to somebody, heck, even Jesus himself would always use parables. I mean, when I was a kid, they used to call parables a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. So you want to give folks something that's applicable to their life. It's Kind of like when you're maybe going through a rough part of town and they see it as the concrete jungle. You want to swing through the jungle. You don't want to walk through the jungle and fall for like a trap or a, or a crocodile or whatever. You're going to swing through it and get through as close as you can. There's little analogies like that one and just practicing and even adding humor too. If you can add humor and uncover it in your daily conversation and deliver it on stage, that'll give you a plus because... Not only are you making folks laugh, they're actually more receptive to hearing your message because you put them at ease. So that's just a couple of ways of just prepare, just reading and everyday conversation and taking mental notes of like, hey, all right, someone actually laughed at this bad pun. All right, cool. I'm going to go ahead and torture, I mean, deliver that to someone else and, hope <laughs> and see if it'll actually get a good laugh out of somebody. So just make, making sure preparation is a daily thing. It, I mean, preparation <laughs> helps you to perform properly, right? Yeah. Yeah, I try to open with something funny whenever I give my talks. And I, I have, I've read Talk Like Ted, and I've also read Dale Carnegie's book on public speaking. And I remember him talking about why you should overprepare. And the reason that he gave was that you want to overprepare because that way nobody will notice if you miss something. <laughs> and that always kind of stuck with me. But you mentioned Jim Rohn and, and Tony Robbins. Are those two guys sort of your go-to? I mean, like some people are Zig Ziglar people. Some people are Tony Robbins, Jim Rohn. Like who are your guys? Like who are your, who have most influenced you and, and your trajectory? Ah, uh, yes. Tony Robbins, he's a great guy. Love that. Love that man. 
he's a great guy. But I wouldn't I wouldn't put him personally in my top five because I kind of came across him after John Maxwell. So mm-hmm. if I had to list five speakers, no order, they would be John Maxwell because of his content, Eric Thomas because of his delivery, Jim Rohn, his wisdom alone is great. He is great. Also, Daniel Alley, he would be another guy. He has a TED Talk online. He has two of them. One of them has about 7 million views. And then he did another one the following year. That one is not as popular, but still a darn good one. Just a like Grant Cardone, Jim Rohn, Eric Thomas. And also a preacher by the name of Mike Murdoch. He's a, some would call him a prosperity gospel preacher, but he's actually not fully one of those shysters out there so he would probably be another one because he was actually a small boy living out in louisiana lake charles louisiana Mm -hmm. and he has a lot of books out like the leadership secrets of of jesus as well as the uncommon leader and he has a whole bunch of one-liners because he was also a songwriter in addition to being a preacher so he was basically a multi-talented guy so him for his wisdom, and heck, I'll even throw a bonus as well, Grant Cardone. He's also another one of my favorites, the 10X Rule, and his presentation that's on YouTube. I think it's the hour-long one that he gave out in Las Vegas, like back in, I think it was 2008 when Obama was first. Wait, no, I think it was 2012. I think it was, yeah, 2012 when Obama was going against Mitt Romney for, like, the candidacy. I, I just love that presentation because he inserted so much humor in there. And that was probably a best culmination of all of his other speeches as well. So I said top five, but I went ahead and named six. <laughs> so we'll go with those. Dude, that is a solid, solid list. I will check out Mike Murdoch because I'm a Louisiana guy too. I grew up in a little town called Thibodeau in Louisiana. And um, Grant Cordone was on Bigger Pockets. Um, so I'm a big fan of the show because I was a guest on there too. And then Eric Thomas, I actually wrote an article where I quoted him at the top. He said that everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what beasts do. <laughs> and I love that. Um, <laughs> John Maxwell is, is as good as it gets, right? I think I always wonder though, how much of his success can be attributed to his voice. I mean, guys like you and Jim Rohn and uh, John Maxwell, you guys have voices that are just awesome. But yeah, John Maxwell talks about what I like most about John Maxwell is he talks about how reflection turns experience into insight and Mm. how preparation will get you in the game, but reflection makes, makes your game better. So like we're not spending a lot of time thinking nowadays and he, he really hones in on like your, your losses are your lessons and that people get, as people get older, they don't always get better because they're not spending any time reflecting. Does that <laughs> yep. with me? Because <laughs> when I was younger, I would always think, wow, this guy's like 25 years older than me. He must be so much smarter. But as I, I am now 25 years older than that, that 18 year old Brad, it's like, yeah, those, those guys weren't really smarter because they didn't really spend any time thinking and reflecting. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a big fan of Maxwell, too. Something you've talked about is your immortality. Like, there's a way to live forever, and it's through authoring a book. Is that something that – did I hear that on your podcast? Is that something that you said, or was it a guest of yours? Oh, yeah, that was that was actually something I ran with. I actually found that out through Joe Vitale in his book called The Seven Laws, Secrets of Success. And he mentioned how a book is 
and publishing it is a, basically entering the business of immortality. And ever since I heard that him say that in the audiobook about about Bruce Borden, I just ran with that, and I always say that. And that's what I tell the folks who first published their books because it's like, like, dude, like you're basically leaving a piece of yourself in this world because nobody's immortal, at least in human form, anyway. So, so yeah, you're right, man. I, I, I say that a lot. I like that. And I'm going to start writing a book in September. I have it all planned out. But you you primarily focus your podcast on authors. Is that right? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. So what? why authors? What is your background? Like what, what's gotten you so into books and, and authoring? Yeah. So back in 2012, when the minds thought the world was going to end and really we just lost Twinkies for a month in the U.S. of A., <laughs> I uh, got to a car accident on my 21st birthday, and my father, he was going through Alzheimer's, and we found out that summer that year, before my birthday, that's when it got worse, and we had to take away his license. And all of that compounded into me being called into my office at the time for my part-time job at the library, and I was slacking off at work, my com- miscommunication errors, and I realized that some things had to change, so... I went into the leadership section of the library, picked up a John Maxwell book, The Five Loves Leadership, and that got me started on being a voracious reader because, funny enough, before that time, I was uh, working in the library part-time for about a good five years before then, but I wasn't as much as an avid, voracious reader as I am today. And that just happened because I had a desire for change. Things went south, and I had to redirect and go north, and being eventually brought to the fact that I was able to publish a book of my own on a dare and realizing that writing and publishing the book is great, but you got to get out and market it and sell it. And my first ever interview, I was being cut off mid-sentence by this guy on the radio station. And I was like, oh, shoot, man, is this how it always is? Then my next interview was a podcast interview and in the podcast, though, she was like, oh, okay, oh, that's it. All right. And she just kept going after that and kept on giving prodding questions to, for me to drop more and I was like oh, okay there's a difference so this isn't how it's really done so all that culminates to the fact that you know what I'm just going to make sure that the first experience that I had isn't going to be the first experience for someone else when they get interviewed so my podcast the going north podcast is like basically making a great experience for those who have published their book especially if it's a self-published book that's their first one and to get their feet wet with being interviewed so they can share their story with the world and get their voice out there because if one person sees good in you, you can run for a lifetime, as a preacher would say. And that just really was the main premise of it because at first the podcast was going to be about me doing book reviews and maybe shouting out some underground artists I heard about. But a friend of mine by the wonderful name of Amy Bernier, she mentioned, hey, you got a brand here with your book. Why don't you keep it on going and call it the Going North Podcast? I'm like, okay, cool. So I had the name, I had the idea, and I wanted to stick with that brand and that way to niche down into something. Mm-hmm. So that way it'll have an idea and have a focus and keep it focused because it's a, it's a lot of things that you hear about. It's like, hey, you need to niche down into this one thing. Like, you know what? I can niche down to this. Let me make it about authors, have that be the main focus of the show. And then if I want to branch out and do something else, then I could probably start a whole other podcast or another platform for that. So that was just mainly how it all came about is just like me having a book and then just coming from a place of service and making sure that someone else doesn't have the experience that I had and that way they can be 
encouraged to keep going and keep pushing their message out as well as the other things that they do. Man, that's great. And so your book and the podcast is called Going North? Yes, sir. Going North, baby. Tips and techniques to advance yourself. Very good. And I know that includes how to develop and maintain a positive attitude, right? Is that one of your tenets, you would say? Oh, yeah. One of those many pillars, wood, metal, stone, and platinum all in one. Let me stop. <laughs> yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and becoming a better thinker, is that one of your pillars? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I want you to expound on that if you don't mind. What are, what are the keys to better thinking? What helps you to think better? What helps me to think better is just having alone time for myself. So I'm, I'm an introvert, as I may have mentioned earlier before, whether here or another show, and recharging is just having alone time. So being by myself, especially whether it be before bed and reflecting on my day or whether it's in the morning with prayer and just setting aside at least a good five minutes of silence to just sit and be still and just be quiet. Let thoughts come to me. And also being ready for ideas. So another thing about expanding your mind is that once you expand it, it can't go back to its same small state. So always keeping something with you, like a voice recorder on your smartphone or a separate voice recorder or like a pen and paper. Keep a small notepad and a pen or two in your car because ideas also come at the least expected moment. So you got to be ready at all times to capture them because I'm pretty sure we've all had that moment of that good idea in the middle of the night. It's like, all right, go shoot this idea. It's freaking awesome. I'll write it down in the morning. Wake up and be like, oh, man, why was that crocodile chasing me because I wore a pair of gaiters? It's a, and then you forget the idea. <laughs> so just being a better thinker is just setting aside the time, maybe even having a thinking chair. Heck, even in the Rizzo's book, The Tower of Wu, he mentioned how just having a separate space, having a thinking chair where you sit in a chair to think and you learn to think for a change. And that's even another book I'm pretty sure you've read from John Maxwell, Thinking for a Change. It's where you just set aside the time to think, write thoughts down, and then maybe even go deeper into those thoughts, reading back over what you wrote down through a journal, and then maybe even adding more to it later, or heck, even polishing it up. Because at first, some things you may write down and be like, man, what the heck was I thinking? Heck, even what was I smoking or what heck, what, what I wasn't smoking? Like, what was I not smoking? I wrote this down. You're like, man, that's crazy. And then you just look back and just even polish it up and then it may lead to something else. So the main thing about thinking is just getting around, well, getting around yourself in a way, getting around in silence and heck, even networking, connecting with others who actually expand your thinking. Like, um, funny enough, I was at a conference a few weeks ago with this lady by the name of Tiana Von Johnson, and she talked about building a multi-million dollar brand, mm -hmm. and she was talking about all sorts of things. She was like upselling all these other things she was doing, but this one thing that I've heard was perception is reality. Well, that phrase became real when I was in a seminar because there's all this whole thing about Instagram and all these social medias about basically ha buying followers. I'm like, man, why to buy followers? Like, that's stupid. And she just posed the question at first, like, oh, so buy followers, why, why not? Like, why buy followers? That's not legit. But at the same time, it's like, if you're trying to get something off the ground and you want to have that perception that, hey, folks are with you, then buy the followers in the beginning if you have the money for it and then have the folks catch up later to you. And I'm like, really? Wow. And then just that one thing, it's like, I mean, yeah, I'm still not going to buy followers for Instagram right now. That's not the main thing. But still, it's like just that one 
Nugget Wisdom, like, hey, that whole perception thing and just publishing a book and or actually publishing multiple books in a way because another thing she mentioned was that every, every person who wants to have a brand should become a speaker. So learn to speak. And if you want to make the brand even bigger, come with the kids book that teaches lessons. So she mentioned how she was going to speak in a couple months at an event for a bunch of kids. And she was talking about speaker fees and whatnot. There may be folks who may not say, all right, nope, we don't have a fee for speakers. But do you have a education fee for books for the children? Oh, yeah, we got that. So, yeah, they buy 100 books for under kids, and you have a kid's book ready for them. So it's just stuff like that, just not only setting aside time and being quiet, but also getting around folks who may present a different idea and having that beginner's mind to actually accept what the folks are saying and taking it for what it is and thinking more about it. I like that, man. You and, you and I are a lot alike. I, I have a question for you. So when I am speaking, if it is to a university or a team that I have been associated with in the past, if I'm available for that, there, there, there is no fee. But anyone else, there is a fee. Do you make exceptions for those that you would ask a speaking fee for? And how do you, how do you limit that list? <laughs> how, how do you manage that? It depends on the organization. So the list is small. So like, like, I mean, like me and my church, for example, I mean, I've been a member there since I was two weeks old. So <laughs> it's, it's like, that. I was like, yeah, if it's, if it's one day I'm asked to do a sermon or whatever, sure. It, I mean, we could collect offering for it, but it's like, if I'm teaching a group of young youth and young adults, like 14 to like 21 about advice on college or whatever, and they want me to teach a Bible class. I mean, yeah, that's, that's free of charge. And, I had my first book signing at that church and over a hundred books were sold that day. It's like for that, it's it's like they supported me in the past. They supported me in the beginning. So like my home church for them, then I'll make an exception for that. Yeah. If that that's probably like the main thing is like, it, it depends on like friends and maybe family or if it's like, uh, and there's also this thing where I haven't done this me personally as of yet, but there may be uh event for like nonprofits where you're speaking on behalf of like a fundraising event trying to raise money for awareness like if it's like breast cancer awareness or like maybe alzheimer's awareness Mm -hmm. something like that and probably that that's that's probably two ways of doing it's like if it's a legit organization and they may have known you since uh like birth or whatever a long long time can make an exception every now and then for them that's probably the way i would go about it Okay. Yeah, it just seems that the list keeps growing and growing. Like you'll have a friend that's starting this organization and it was the uh, the friend that helped you with a project in college or something. And so could you please come and speak? I don't know. You just always feel kind of obligated and you realize, well, that's, they, they, they see it as a benefit to you as the speaker because it gives you an opportunity to mention your, you know, blog or your podcast or whatever. So I don't, yeah, it's, it's a good discussion, but maybe we'll take that offline. I, I do have more questions about it, but let's get back to, um, so your podcast is Going North, and I listened to an episode recently that I thought was really interesting about virtual assistants. So do you remember what the name of that company was? The guy was the founder, CEO of, do you remember that one? Oh yeah, Nathan Hirsch, and his site is freeup.com, so yeah. Uh, that, that was a guy, Nathan Hirsch and freeup.com. Okay. Have you considered a virtual assistant or do you use one? Uh, I mean, I basically may go to Fiverr for like gives 
gigs, I mean, not gives, gigs, <laughs> gigs for like work on websites and graphic designs and stuff like that. But virtual assistant, I haven't gotten to that point yet, to be honest. I mean, when I get to that point, eventually, if I'm getting like to the point where it's like, all right, I don't have enough hours in a day and I'm putting more action and I have hours in a day and it's cutting into sleep, then maybe I might get down to that point. But maybe right now at this point, not, no, if not virtual assistants. Yeah, I've always thought what you're not good at or enjoy doing that you should delegate, but it's, it's, a, it's a fine line. Like where's that inflection point where you decide, well, I'm going to grow. And so this virtual assistant is an investment. You know, it's always, it's always a tough call. So I was kind of curious how you manage that too. But so you're a best-selling author. Did you, did you delegate any of the research for your book or anything? I mean, tell me a little bit about your book. I don't, I'm not the guy who will tell you that I read your book when I didn't. So I'm sure. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah. so I got to be honest. Yeah, I haven't read it. But um, did you do all of the work yourself? Tell me about your book. But yeah, the book itself. Yeah, so funny enough, the best-selling book is actually book number two, Stay the Course, The Elite Performer's Seven Secret Keys to Sustainable Success. So the Kindle ebook actually made number one in personal growth under spiritual and personal development. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Screenshot this one. And a lot of that, it really didn't come on my own. Funny enough, an older episode of the Going, well, not too much older, but an episode of the Going North podcast with Dr. Jeff Standridge, he talked about customer development in that episode. And he mentioned how when he released two best-selling books in six months, he did it because he asked a bunch of ladies their feedback on books on how they prefer to have a book about this particular topic. All right, so innovation, what does an innovator do? And like five or maybe 10 questions. So I basically followed his advice from that episode and asked a bunch of ladies on like, all right, so if you want a book on leader performance, like what would you expect to get out of it? And I compounded all the answers, took some of the things that I do myself as well as some stories from other folks who have actually been known as lead performers and just basically put that into a package as well as also asked some people like, Hey, could you buy this ebook? So that way it can hopefully get to best seller status. Cause there's this one wonderful guy out there by the name of Sean Douglas. He released his bestseller blueprint formula on Facebook a few months ago because he mentioned a lot of folks in network are releasing books and it's like, okay, cool. So basically took combined Jeff's advice, with the making the product and Sean Douglas's advice with actually getting a team together of a hundred people and actually getting enough of them to buy the book and then making sure you keep good watch of your Amazon page if how many folks are buying the book and then make sure you screen shot as well because they update that every hour. So on Amazon that's how I was able to do it. It was a combination of just basically of other people. If if I tried to do this all on my own, it would have taken me years. I I probably would have never paid attention as much to the Amazon rankings without actually paying attention to other folks who influence and actually have done something that you actually want to do. Yeah, my buddies know that I prefer constructive criticism to praise, especially my good buddies. And I had one that texted me after a recent podcast that I did and told me that he really enjoyed it because I didn't plug my own writing as much. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, all that is to say that when I was on Bigger Pockets, here I go again, when I was on, a guest on Bigger Pockets, one of the hosts, Brandon Turner, said that he wrote a blog post on how to write a book in 90 days. 
So I uh, want to uh, yeah, check that out when I start to write my book in September. And especially because you also talked about like once you write the book and you've published it, the work is just starting, right? I mean, that's when you have oh, yeah. marketing it and all of that. And I, I'm not good at that. So maybe that's one of the things that I'll delegate. But uh, and you just got to keep up with it. <laughs> yeah. Just keep up with it. You're good. You'll, you'll be good. You'll be good. Yeah. A lot of big time authors like Robert Greene have a staff of researchers. And I know that Ryan Holiday worked on his staff before he started writing his books. So are you familiar with Ryan Holiday? He's written like The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy. Ah, uh, yep, yep. That was yeah. the first time it came to my mind, too. Ego is the Enemy. Yeah. I still need to read that, but I heard of them. Yeah, so I've read those and I've read The Daily Stoic, um, but I haven't read The Perennial Seller, which is the one that I probably should read first. But I, I think that I would have the easiest time writing a book like the ones that Ryan Holiday writes, because he basically takes something that exists and then gives his own thoughts about, like, so the Daily Stoic is just quotes from Seneca and the Stoics and his thoughts on those quotes, or he'll tell a story like, when you're at the workplace and this happens and, you know, try to channel the Stoics and think this way. So anyway, I think that that would be a lot easier way to go is is there somebody's style who you've sort of mimicked or somebody who's in, influenced your writing that you like directly channel or you'll read one of his books right before you start writing uh i've read so many different books from so many different authors but if if i was to say if i had maybe a huge influence it would probably be john maxwell because he's my favorite author and he's the one of the few authors where i've read probably one of his books twice, and that was the 21 Qualities of a Leader book. Mm. I have to say, probably him, but funny enough, my first book, Going North, I'd say around half of that book was just speeches I gave at Toastmasters, and I just basically wrote them down. And Because funny enough, most speeches I give, I usually don't write them out. It's a rare occasion where I write out a whole speech and then try to deliver it. Mm. But a, a lot of my writing is basically me talking. So if you have a transcriber like Dragonfly or if you open Google Voice and open up a Google Doc and you can transcribe that way, that's probably one good way to go about it. So you most as an influence, John Maxwell will probably be it if I had to maybe pin it down to someone. But, but yeah, there we go. Yep. So John Maxwell's a writer and just me giving speeches and then transcribing them later and polishing them. Yeah, and who was, you said you used Dragonfly for transcribing? Oh, no, I was just listed Dragonfly as a possible transcriber, mm -hmm. but I probably, I use, well, actually, I don't even really transcribe. I just basically record my speeches and then write them down later as a blog post on like LinkedIn or medium.com or something. Yeah, I, John Maxwell, you know, I mentioned earlier how he talks about reflection turns experience into insight. So I, after watching one of your speeches, I reflected on one that I gave recently where I spent too much time standing behind the podium. And uh, yeah, I, you helped me there because I won't do that again. Is that something that they teach in Toastmasters, not to spend too much time and standing in one place? <sighs> yeah, they do. But the thing about that is it depends on the person because funny enough, one time I gave a speech where I was standing away from the podium or the lectern and my stance was a little off for some people because 
I have a Taekwondo background, and one foot's usually in ready stance. Some, some always in ready stance when I'm standing up. But when I was in behind the podium, I would basically be poised and first with like perfect posture, whatever. And one guy, he was like probably like in his fifties or whatever, and he's been Toastmaster for like twenty years. He's like, they may say stand away from the lectern, but it's like if it works for you, just go with it. Because it it really just depends on the presentation that you're giving, to be honest. Because some people, it's like, yeah, if you can move around and it's actually purposeful movement, then go with it. But if you're better behind the lectern and you can actually gesture effectively and you can make sure you're not monotone through the whole presentation, then just go with that. I mean, do what's best for you. I mean, there's some presentations like, yeah, I don't, I usually try to be dynamic. I don't stand in front of the darn podium the whole time but it's like do whatever works for you and just make sure that it's entertaining and informational so that way folks actually get the message because the it, it's really message over everything and it, uh, and that's probably the last point about this one there's this guy by the name of dana lamont and he won the world championship of public speaking back in 92 and if you're able to find the clip of that he's basic he's this blind guy with this booming voice and he stood behind the lectern the whole time when everybody else told him to move from behind the lectern. And he actually won the world championship from standing behind the podium the whole time because his message was so clear and effective that it was great. And funny enough, the year before, he actually was in second place. And that speech, he told everybody in the audience, he was actually moving around and doing all sorts of gestures and whatnot. So it just really depends on the person. And making sure that when you move around, it's not too distracting from the message you want to convey. Mm. That's good to know. You said his last name is Lamond? Oh, yeah, Lamond. So it's uh, Dana, D-A-N-A, and last name Lamond, L-A-M-O-N. Very good. So what is your occupation? Occupation, so motivational speaker by night podcast junk. Let me stop. But so it's an occupation, though, full-time librarian. So work at a library full-time day and evening because it's open seven days a week it's a public library and when i'm not at the library just basically doing this writing books blogs interviewing people trying to inspire the world to do more Man, more good that, stuff more good stuff that is <laughs> beautiful. that is my dream job um we've <laughs> we were talking about john maxwell and it got me thinking every airport i go to there's a john maxwell book for sale like i think that his books are he probably sells more books at airports than any other like Barnes and Nobles or any other store. I don't know what it is about people that I guess they want to get inspired on airplanes, but that's where I get a lot of my inspiration. So I'm a weirdo. I prefer a 10 or 11 hour flight to a two hour flight because I like you like the solitude and I like the time to think and where else are you going to get that much time in one sitting without distractions. You can't use your phone unless you're gonna scroll through pictures. And I have seen people looking at pictures of themselves for seven hours. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, but yeah, man, I, I just love the, the solitude and to have a job as a librarian, that is perfect. So how has that changed? So how long have you been doing that? Man, it's been 12 years now. It's wow. been one heck of a growth process. Oh, that's so cool. So tell me how that job has evolved. Like I, the last time I dealt with a librarian was when I was a kid. So what do people come to you for? Like, give me a day in the life. 
Yeah, so the day, it's basically almost action from day one because I work at a library, a public one that is not your typical library. I'm pretty sure you've seen the meme where it says your comfort zone is here and what you want is outside, like there, that dot outside of the circle. Mm -hmm. And the whole library space where that dot outside of the comfort zone circle because we're a public service community hub. We get about a good 100 to 300 teenagers a day after school because we have a high school directly behind us and we're a drop-off point for five other schools. We have senior citizens who come in for computer help and they hate computers and they need help with that and they may be looking for a job or a part-time job and they need help with resumes. And then, of course, we got the moms and the, well, actually just not moms, but parents, period, with their kids from birth to five and they're just helping the kids to learn and play and read stories to them. So, from day one, there could be a person at the copier. They may need help with the copier. There's no person who is applying for a job on a website, and the website's so darn convoluted, and the language is probably not all there, and they may want you to enter in, like, your desired salary. Some folks may be like, all right, sorry, so $12 an hour, hourly, yeah. They're like, no, no, you got to put the salary per year amount. They don't put it directly. It could be that. They could be trying to scan something or... Heck, even some folks are asking if we can fax something for them. And then we also got video game systems for them. So we got three PlayStation 4s where instead of having the kids out on the streets, we get them in the library. So they come in the library, they play video games, whether it's NBA 2K or maybe some Marvel vs. Capcom. We do keep them muted, at least the games anyway, so that way it's not too much noise, even though they, they can get a little loud. I mean... Noise control is kind of hard when you have a bunch of people in a small building and folks are going to talk to each other eventually. So it's just that and then just occasional nonsense. There may be people fighting over a conference room where they're trying to be quiet or whatever and occasional song parking in the handicapped space. It's just like so much. It, <laughs> almost every day is different in a way. There's the calm moments and the not so calm moments, but it's a fulfilling job because at the end of the day, it's like I help somebody. They Somebody smiled today because I actually tried to help them out. They, even the help is a little extravagant sometimes for others because they may feel so comfortable that they may be telling you life stories that you may have never wanted to hear in the first place. It may, they may go full TMI and tell you the life story and you feel like a bartender, <laughs> except you have books instead of beer <laughs> or whatnot. So that's really what the day of life is, just really helping people and always standing a lot. I, I really don't sit down that much at, at work, to be honest. And it's actually a good thing. I don't need to be sitting down all, all day. That, that's bad for health. Man, what a fulfilling job. What's the greatest kindness you've experienced at your job? Like maybe an expression of gratitude or something like that. The greatest expression of gratitude at work was this older lady. She came in with crutches every day looking for work. And she took a few Microsoft Excel classes hosted by one of our librarians. And one day she came in with a whole, it was Christmas time last year, she came in with this big platter of cupcakes, homemade cupcakes. One of them was a cheesecake-flavored cupcake. And, well, I didn't get to taste that one. The, the ladies got their hands on that one before I did, obviously. But, uh, but that she came with the whole platter of cupcakes and bought in little miniature gifts for all of us, like socks and whatnot, for the staff because after months of applying for jobs she finally got a job as a 
person fielding calls for 911. So she basically worked for that company for a while. And funny enough, the Microsoft classes that she was taking actually helped her with the process of just keeping statistics and things like that. So that was probably one of the biggest examples of gratitude in what the library is nowadays in the 21st century. It's beyond the books. It, it, it's bigger than books. I mean, we books are being produced all over the world, and you can get e-books nowadays, but folks are going to need help with just deciphering the difference between fake news and actual news and using actual research databases, and folks are going to need co-working spaces and Wi-Fi just to get work done mm-hmm. and things like that. So that's probably one of the most telling is one of the most heartwarming things because she used to come in every day on the crutches looking for employment and she eventually got to the point where she got employed she got a job and she was so grateful she made cupcakes for the staff so that, that was an amazing thing that is awesome that's a great story um what are your thoughts on apps like uh, libby Libby is great because it's better than overdrive I used to carry overdrive at a certain particular system and I hate having to enter my library card every now and then. But Libby's pretty good. But I have to say my favorite app that I picked up for a library is Hoopla. And Hoopla is probably the biggest selection out of everything. And you get to check out 10 different items a month. At, at the beginning, it's like, oh, I want to check out everything. But if you make a wish list and then your reading list grows and your watch list grows so much that you eventually just forget to use a rental or whatever. So that's probably a good way to check out audiobooks and especially audiobooks that Overdrive or Libby may not carry. Kind of like the Seven Law Secrets of Success by Joe Vitale. That one I heard through the Hoopla app, and it's really great. Mm. I had a girl ask me in my 20s one time. She said, uh, Brad, like we don't ever see you. Where do you go to happy hour? And I must have been about 28 years old at the time, and I realized that I had not once been to happy hour. And nice. that, yeah, that quote reminded me, or, or that question reminded me of, I remember Jim Rohn saying one time that the wisdom of the world is available to you and it's free. And guess how many, guess what percentage of the population has a library card? And it was something at that time, it was something like 3%, but now it's probably way less than 1%, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, folks have appeared more libraries for Wi-Fi, but yeah, folks don't really know the full advantage. I mean, funny enough, uh, we had entrepreneur classes, the Entrepreneur Academy. Uh, we just got done a six-week session of it, and a lot of folks, when we showed them our databases, they signed up for library cards. Like, oh, shit, I didn't know you guys had this. It's like folks really don't think about it. They still think 1980s. It's like card catalogs and old white ladies pushing carts. It's like, no, (laughs) not really. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about money because I'm sure you know on the Man Overseas podcast, we talk a lot about the pursuit of financial independence. Tell me about your views on time versus money. Yep. Time is your life. True bank account. We all have the same amount of time, but not everybody uses the same amount of time effectively. So time, you have to try to get to a point where you can buy time. So kind of like how those millionaires, in, in a way, <laughs> kind of like with the, we were talking about earlier with the virtual assistant, like getting to a point where it's like, all right, do I, have to have, do I have enough money for a virtual assistant or better yet? Do I have to think about bigger picture goals and hire away my weaknesses and hire away some basically busy work so that way I can focus more on my dreams? So 
Time is basically very important because you don't get it back. And I'm pretty sure the classic story, I think it's like, what is it, like 86,400 seconds we got in a day or whatever, or like 1,440 minutes we have in a day. It's like someone gave you that amount. It's like, all right, you have that same amount every day, and you get to use as much of it as you can, but you don't get any of it back. Whatever you use, you lose, and you don't get it back. It's like just like that, just getting to the point where it's like, all right, making sure you make your time count and making sure you get to the point where you basically can use your time to actually get more things done, not just for getting things done, but also maybe for fun stuff. Like I guess kind of like what you're doing, traveling the world. And I'm guessing you're probably making money off of it in a way for, through the blogging or whatever. So <laughs> just doing stuff like that. Yeah. Do you save and invest a certain percentage of your money, of your income? Yep. Yeah, so I usually do a tithe 10% to my church and also save 10% for myself as well from every paycheck as well. So usually save that as well from every check. So that way, you know, keep it all hidden. <laughs> and do, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so it's automated. Do you have like a, a pension fund or like a 401k or something through your work? There's also a pension fund through work as well, kind of like the um, – Maryland Teachers Fund, that's similar, in which the 401k, they like take a percentage out of the every other check, usually the first of the month, and then the savings is automated, so that way it's like you don't have to physically go through it, because I, I tried the whole doing it myself thing, and it doesn't always work out too well, so, <laughs> automation is the way to go, <laughs> automation. Cool. So I'm going to ask some quick questions, if that's all right, um, and that your answers don't have to be quick. But since you're a librarian, I really want to focus there because you have a lot of, of good tips from what I've heard on your um, podcast. So if I see the stat all the time that says that college graduates, a large percentage of college graduates never read a nonfiction book after graduating. If someone is listening who wants to start reading but doesn't know where to start, what would you tell them? I'd say start small. Start small. That's funny. Start small, then go big. So probably heard this on a solopreneur, Brian podcast, but as a man think of, that's a great book to read because it's nice, small, to the point, 64 pages. Start with something small like that. Heck, my book itself, Going North, it's only 54 pages and it's thin. So just go for small books like that that are small, quick to the point, Heck, even start with actual blogs. Heck, even read even more of the Man Overseas blog as well. Just reading blogs and reading articles, reading something inspirational. Start with something small, then go big. Because that's how I started becoming a voracious reader again. I mean, I'd have these 200, 300-plus page books, even 40 Laws of Power. I learned how to speed read and read with my finger and, my, and using pens, especially with those red quotes on the side of the book basically speed reading through those and underlining them and not reading in my head as much. So basically underlining them and just making sure the hand-eye coordination is good. Just basically doing that. That was basically the advice I'd give to them is that if, if you just start small and then eventually brick by brick build up to something, you'll actually eventually start reading again and you get to and the good thing is you get to read the stuff that you want to read. You don't have to read the books that they force you to read. Yeah, I like that advice. Uh, a lot of avid readers recommend that you pick up a bunch of different books 
And if it doesn't grab you, put it down and then keep trying till you find something that you like. What do you mean by going big though? What does that mean? Yeah, big. So as a man thinking, it's like 64 pages, 40 laws of power, all the seduction, that's like 450 close to 500 pages. So that's what I'm, in terms of size. And also another thing is trying to read a book a week. So try to go for 50 books a year. That's a goal I've set for myself since 2013. I've read at least 50 plus books every year. First year I read around a good 52 books. 2014, it was around a good 102. Then 20. 15 through 16, when I started doing more writing, I read around a good, I think it was like somewhere between 70 and 92 books. So trying to set a goal where you can read at least a book a week. And heck, even if nonfiction is not your thing or fiction takes too long to get to the point, maybe even go with graphic novels. I mean, there's more books are being transferred into graphic novels because pictures are worth a thousand words. If you can read through some of the mangas and get some of the lessons through it, that'll be awesome. Heck, even there's actually manga versions of certain courses. Like there's the manga version of Calculus, another manga version. I think it was like Geometry, where it has these little anime characters, like giving you advice on geometry, trigonometry, and science and things like that. Heck, even the Bible itself, there's a manga Bible. I've I've read part of that, especially the Gospel piece and like it actually matched up with the actual real Bible itself. So even picking up just graphic novels as well, even just doing that as well, just starting small with something like a small book, working way up to a larger, thicker book and reading even more than ever before. So try to go for a book a week, or if that's even too big, you can even go for one book a month, try to get 12 books done a year. Yeah. So that's probably what I mean by that. Yeah, I like that. And you touched on speed reading. So the way that I try to do that is by curling my finger and then letting the, shoot, I don't know what you call, I guess from the knuckle to the middle of your finger, allowing that to be, what I'm trying to say is like your finger can be small, but when you spread it out by, I'm thinking like when Bill Clinton said, I did not have sex with that woman, you know that thing he does with his thumb? <laughs> well, if you can take your forefinger and then slide it across the page, and then, because we, we see words like in screenshots almost, right? So you're not moving your eyes across the page, you're actually getting them in, in small little captures. Am I saying that right? Yep. Okay, so you want to speed that up and not read in your head. Can you explain what you mean by not reading in your head? Yeah, so for that, not reading your head, it's like, all right, so on this, on this book, you have this page that says, Brad is awesome. You don't say that in your head, even though you probably want to. So instead, <laughs> of, instead of reading the actual page, it's like, all right, Brad is awesome. And then you read that, and you're trying to quiet your mind down, just underlining it, just making sure your eyes lock with it. And with probably starting with like a, like a thing like your finger first i think i think the fingers is usually good to start and then moving on to like a stylus or a pen just makes it even quicker where you can move down the page that's probably the way i see it now granted i'm not a master at it yet so there, there's still some times where it's like oh shoot what did i say like <laughs> did this really say that because there, there are some books out there that are uh little on the trashy side of the game and and you check a book in, especially if it's urban fiction, it's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, one book was titled like Broken 
Anacondas and Promises. I'm like, wait, what the fudge? Like, <laughs> like, for a, like a book like that? I was like, wait, this is for real. <laughs> but yes, yeah, that's, that's what I mean, though. But like vibrating in your head is making sure you actually underline it and just work at it. It, it it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time depending on the person. I'm, I'm, I may know how, some techniques, but I'm not a master at it. I, there may be times like, oh, shoot, let me go back and underline that again. Yeah. So you use a, you underline, you don't highlight? Yeah, usually, usually underline. I got a four colored pen, so usually underline in red. Sometimes I use the green ink because, I mean, who uses green ink? I mean, I don't can even use green ink for anything, really. So just usually underlining words, especially in a personal book, not a library copy. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned James Allen's How um, As a Man Thinketh. If, is there one book that every time you read it, you think, I wish everybody would read this book besides maybe the Bible? Man, ah, man, let's see here. That one's good. Let's see if there's a different, you know, let's see. There's like so many. I'll tell you mine and then maybe it'll, it'll prompt you. So every time I read How to Win Friends and Influence People, I always think, oh man, I wish everybody would read this book. It would just make the world so much better of a place. Yeah, that's actually a great one, to be honest. That's a great one. Heck, I, I'll, I'll probably agree with you on that one because it's, it's like so many of them, but it's like, you know what? That probably is the book that really everyone should read. I mean, there's like variations of it, like Winning with People, Job Maxwell, or How to Talk to, How to Talk to Anyone by Leo Lowndes. I think that was written like back in the early 90s or late 80s, like 92 Ways to Connect with People. But but yeah, just books connect with people. How to Friends with Influence People, that's probably the one I have to agree with because, I mean relationships matter and if you can talk with people connect with them and learn how to get along with them then you'll basically have the golden key to getting to anywhere you want to go because uh, people like to do business as you know with people that they know like and trust and if you're likable folks know you're likable and they trust you you're basically in and you can get in anywhere you want to go it's like favorites like folks applying for a job i mean um in his book called The Connector's Advantage, it talked about how this one lady, a friend of the author named Sally, I think, she was looking for a dream job, and she told her friends about it, and she got connected with the person who was basically the hiring manager for the company, and she connected with them, did an inter informational interview, and got the job in a month, as opposed to everybody else who sees that open job, like, oh, shoot, there's a job that you apply for, like, yeah, I hope they get back to me, and it's like, yeah, you ain't hear nothing back. And that lady Sally had the job. It's like just just stuff like that. So yeah, I, that's probably the book I have to mention for you, Grit. You how to win friends and influence people. That's cool. If you were traveling somewhere and there was only one pa uh, podcast that you could take with you, and it wasn't yours or mine, whose would it be? Ah, crap! No self promotion. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, there's so many. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It one podcast. Hmm, one. You know what? I think I'd have to go with Lewis Howe's podcast, The School of Greatness. Mm. I, I don't listen to it regularly because, I, to be honest, most of my podcast listening is done through YouTube mm. and then probably Player FM and then maybe, like, I guess, um, CastBox or Google Play. But I'd have to say it's Lewis Howe's School of Greatness because he has so many great people on there and He's gotten folks on there like Ray Lewis. He's gotten Kobe Bryant, 
Chris Hogan is great too. I, and I love his, his interview His his interview was great as well. And just all these awesome people and Sarah Blakely's interview was great. He even got Ty Lopez on there as well. So that'd probably be the one podcast I'd choose to listen to. If, if I only had one podcast to listen to. That's cool. That was a tough one too. Cause there's like so many others out there that I, I go on and off on. Yeah. Chris Hogan came from Dave Ramsey. Is that right? Is that where he's from? Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. Part of Dave Ramsey's camp. What do you love most yes. about Baltimore? Uh, crab cakes. <laughs> nice. Yes, indeed. Yeah, people are cool for the most part, at least the ones I meet out in the area. So, yep, crab cakes, people. Yep. You know what I didn't ask you and I wanted to? Um, what is your favorite biography? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, favorite biography. Man, oh, man. All right. Uh, there are so many out there. I have like five, but I have to choose one. Uh, well, give me two. All right, we'll go with two. So the first one I have to say would be Elon Musk's biography. Mm-hmm. That one was really good, especially, I think it was chapter 11, where he, where he got to that story of how both Tesla and SpaceX were basically in the red, and it was like Christmas time or whatever, and he couldn't buy a toy for his daughter. Mm-hmm. And out of nowhere, funding came in at the last minute for to fund SpaceX to launch a rocket into the moon i mean launch mm-hmm. to space and the money came through and he was able to buy a toy for his kid after that that would be the the first one and the other one i'd have to say would probably be chris jericho's book a lion's tale mm-hmm. and that book is hilarious and funny because Chris Jericho is fresh to wrestler turned best-selling author basically a dude who's living his best life my dude was a world champion in professional wrestling, a rock star with his group Fozzie, and a best-selling author on the New York Times list. Like, dude, that's like living your best life right there. And his first book, it started off with the countdown. It ended off in the countdown and just told stories of how he was in Canada and he announced that in the church that he was going to leave his hometown to become a professional wrestler. And the whole church laughed at him and he never returned to that church again all the way to his time where he went to Japan and the times he went to Mexico and had all these wrestling matches. And it, it, it's just so good. That is probably one biography that I go back to because it was so darn entertaining and pro wrestlers are known for the story. So Elon Musk biography that was written by Ashley Vance and Chris Jericho's first biography book, A Lion's Tale. One more question before I ask how people can find out more about you. How many people have you inspired to write a book? Okay, to my knowledge, I believe about five. So three of them are U.S. veterans. There's an author by the name of Chris Jordan. He wrote a book called Inspired to Lead. He published his. Mark Greatness Hunter, he wrote his book called The Greatest Manifesto. And then there's Luke Wright. He is a major and a fellow John Maxwell coach. He wrote his book called The Right Thought since his last name is Wright, with the W-R-I-G-H-T. And the fourth one is Christy Callahan Cromwell. She wrote a book called The Top Ten Keys to Weight Loss. And the fifth one is a good guy named Eric Williamson. Now, granted, funny enough, he actually told me for years that he was going to write a book, and he had it basically done, but he didn't know what to do with it. And he wrote a book called How to Work with Jerks. And... 
his original book was called Emotional Intelligence, How to Work with People Who Don't Give a Damn, but he actually got a book coach and is finally able to do it shortly after mine, and it it, it was just a great thing. So those are the five that, oh, wait, nope, there's six. Dr. Elizabeth Carter from Toastmasters. She's uh, the district director out in District 18. She published a book probably about a good four months ago, How to Gain Access, and it was a nice little professional development book and workbook. It was a nice short book because um, she was in, she turned her she basically turned her doctor's dissertation into a book series. So she released the first book earlier this year. So those are the six that I know of. That's great. Well, speaking of good dudes, you, my man, are a good dude, and I really appreciate you being on. How can people find out more about you? Yeah, some say just Google me, type in Dom Brightman, and you'll find me. If you want to shoot me an email, type in dombrightman at gmail.com. Soon to be Dom at dombrightman.com. I'm all over the social medias, the Instagrams and whatnot. Feel free to hop my DMs for some inspiration. Slide into his DMs, ladies. <laughs> That's right. Baseball slide if you have to. Let me stop. <laughs> awesome. I really enjoyed it, dude. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on. Thanks again for having me, Brad. You are the man. Keep being bold, man. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us today, folks. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating or review on iTunes or both. When you do that, it makes the podcast easier for people to find, and I would love to extend my influence and impact more people as Dom would. So if you wish to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. <laughs>